ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, this is Tom Gilson. There's a new paradigm emerging in biology driven by the raw power of rapidly accumulating new data. It fits well with predictions made by intelligent design theory while being nowhere near so consistent with the usual evolutionary assumptions. It's the systems biology revolution. And today on ID the Future, Dr. Emily Reeves, a biologist with the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute, explains where this thinking is coming from and some of where we can expect it to lead. This is from her presentation at the August 2022 Westminster Conference on Science and Faith, jointly sponsored by the Discovery Institute and Westminster Theological Seminary. This systems biology revolution, it really wasn't expected by a lot of scientists. It might not even have been welcomed by many scientists, but it was a revolution that was necessary. It was a revolution that really has been driven by the data, specifically big data. And I'm going to argue today that it was a revolution that was actually predicted by intelligent design. My name is Emily Reeves, and today I'm going to be telling you guys about, very excited actually, to tell you guys about the systems biology revolution. So this is a revolution that wasn't expected, this kind of a theme we've been hearing. What happened is over the past like 20 to 30 years, the technology that we've been using to do biology, chemistry, and genetics has actually changed a lot. It has improved. It has advanced. And with that advanced technology, we are able to now have a, it's producing, I guess I should say, data that's better revealing and showing how complex biology actually is. Now, some of the key technological advancements that have led to this increased appreciation for complexity are namely DNA sequencers, mass spectrometry, and of course, advanced computing. So DNA sequencers and mass spectrometry, these two key technological advancements, they produce big data like genomic data, transcriptomic data, proteomic and metabolomic data. And then that big data can be analyzed and modeled using advanced computing. So together, these amazing tools are increasing our understanding and appreciation for how complex biology actually is. And then the big data they're producing is allowing us to see biology more clearly and differently than before. So I said that, you know, it's now scientists are seeing biology more clearly or differently than before. What does that mean? You know, what have we learned from big data? Well, in short, the big data indicate that cells, tissues, and organisms, they operate as systems, integrated harmonious systems. And some of the key findings underlying this realization is the uncovering of like hierarchical integration, the discovery of advanced signaling networks in biology, and the recognition that living organisms have these emergent properties. Now, these are all kind of hard things to understand, right? Like unless you're an engineer 
or you're studying systems biology, you know, hierarchical integration, signaling networks, emergent properties, those are kind of hard to understand. So to help myself understand them, I did a thought experiment. And this thought experiment involved actually my television remote. Because typically when I come home from work, I like want to flip on the TV, you know, and relax for a few minutes. So I did this thought experiment and I asked myself, okay, I wanted to understand the importance of these things like integration, signaling, and emergence, right? I want to understand why these things would be important for describing a system. So I thought, okay, let me see if I can actually describe my television remote without any of these things. Let me see if I can describe it, you know, without these properties. Basically, I have to just describe it using like a component-based analysis. So let me share my first description with you. So I imagine like, okay, if I'm pushing the volume up button on the remote, how would I describe that or, or how would I describe the remote? So this is what I came up with. I said, okay, a remote is a volume up button plus a completed circuit plus the binary command 0010010 plus an LED pulse. What do you guys think of that? It's kind of like not all that meaningful, right? It's, I didn't like it. So I tried again. I said, okay, this time, let me try to include more things, like, like more of the features of the remote. So I said, okay, a remote is a power, rewind, play, pause, fast forward, stop, TV, audio, radio, menu, help, AV, all these different things button, plus all the circuits for them, plus the binary commands for them, plus coordinated LED pulses when you push them, right? Let's define the remote like that. So it's better, right? But still, it lacks a lot of things. So this exercise actually helped me realize how important integration signaling and emergence are for describing something. For instance, those descriptions, those component-based descriptions I just gave you, those do not tell me that the actual value of this system is that I can sit on my couch from a distance away and I can control the TV, right? That's the actual value of the system. They also those descriptions, they do not tell me that the remote is actually a communication device between myself and the TV. Now let's contrast that description with a description involving integration signaling and emergence. So I now define the remote in, in those terms. And here's what I got. I said, a remote allows for control of an activity, process, or machine from a distance using coded signals. It's so much more meaningful, right? It makes like, and clear, actually. So this is basically what the big data has done for us in science. It's helped us to realize that in order to accurately describe a system, we need to use things like, we need to use integration, signaling, and emergence to describe a system accurately. So what sparked the whole systems biology revolution that we're talking about today is that biology was actually not explained well by reductionism or by that component-based description that I just illustrated with my first example with the remote. So reductionism, which is basically that component description, if I define that, it's basically trying to, you know, figuring out how something works by taking it apart or attempting to explain systems as a sum of their parts. And there are a number of reasons why scientists were using this approach. And we're going to look at three of them. So the first one is that we previously lacked technology 
to understand and explore integration in networks. And this we've kind of talked about a little bit already, right? We didn't have DNA sequencers or we didn't have as good of mass spectrometers. And so for that reason, it was harder for us to understand how complex biology was, how much integration signaling was going on, okay? The second reason, we learned a lot by taking the system apart. So even though, if we go back to the remote example, even though those component-based descriptions weren't like super, super meaningful, they still gave us some information, right? You could still learn things from it. And that's part of why reductionism is so, has been so long-standing in biology and also, you know, has prevailed is that we actually have learned a lot in biology just by taking the system apart. We're great at breaking things, you know, and seeing what happens. You can learn a lot doing that. Okay. The third reason that reductionism was popular is that scientists were actually expecting, many scientists were actually expecting clumsy bottom-up design. This is something we're going to talk a little bit more about. So why, why would scientists have been expecting, you know, clumsy bottom-up design? Well, we've heard this like in numerous talks already, but basically if you, if, if one takes the assumption that organisms are just blindly assembled by incremental evolutionary steps, then you don't really expect things like integration or signaling, like advanced signaling or emergent properties. We don't, you don't expect that from a blind, you know, random process because we know from everything else we experience that these long unguided processes, they do not produce well-designed systems with those properties, hierarchical integration, signaling networks, or emergence. We don't see those things. So because we don't see those things, it's hard to even, for, it was hard for me to even come up with an illustration or like an analogy to help you guys um, like better form the links for why scientists, you know, might take a reductionist approach given that assumption. But I did my best. So I would like to present to you the Rube Goldberg remote. <laughs> so this here, so this is a remote. It can also turn on the TV, but it is a clumsy design. It looks like, you know, like very last minute, someone just grabbed whatever they had in their household and kind of assembled it, right? In like no particular order. And there's, you know, like if you, I guess if you pull in this fishing line here, you, you know, you like dump the pot and like maybe you turn on the TV. <laughs> but there, like if you just look at this system, you don't expect things like, I mean, the integration is very minimal. Networking, mm, pretty much non-existent. Emergence, mm, also very, very minimal, right? So you can imagine that if you take the assumption that biology and these living systems that, you know, we observe and see, if they are like the result of, you know, just some random design process or like this, this is still a design, right? But it happened, it seems like it happened very kind of haphazardly. There doesn't appear to have been like planning or optimization or any of those things, right? So you can imagine if you take that assumption, then you know, if you take this system apart piece by piece, you're actually going to be able to describe it pretty well. Or, you know, this system basically is the sum of its parts. There's not, there's not a lot to it. But we know that biology 
doesn't actually look like this, right? Biology, in fact, looks like the top-down designed remote, exhibiting hierarchical levels of integration, signal processing, emergence, and we see all the parts, you know, of the system appear to be chosen and optimized for the end goal of like turning on the TV. So although many scientists, they might have started with a reductionistic approach, right? As we've seen, a lot of them started there, but also many of them have started to realize that that approach is not sufficient to explain biology. So I want to take you now to meet some of these researchers from the fields of biochemistry, which is my own field, virology, genetics, and computer science. I want you to meet them so that you can better understand how, how these scientists in their fields recognize that reductionism was not sufficient. So let's hear from Leela and Anne. So these are biochemists, and they have recognized that reductionism is not not sufficient in their field of protein biochemistry. So I, they say, quote, most importantly, the era of blind, fervent reductionism, wherein biochemists and biophysicists purified and purified to enable studies of isolated biomolecules is over. It is abundantly evident that proteins do not work as separate entities and that their most basic properties, such as affinities for ligands, catalytic activities, and stabilities are influenced by their interactions and solution environment. So basically, you know, what they're saying here is, you know, we know that proteins, we can isolate them. I did that during my PhD. <laughs> you know, you can isolate a protein, but it functions in, in, in its own little world, if you will. And so we need to understand, you know, more of the whole system to be able to accurately describe this. Okay, so Derek Gather, he's a virologist from the University of Glasgow. He explains that, you know, when he kind of took a step back and saw a more broad view, he realized that a systems view was necessary. Quote, the broadening of molecular biology into systems biology has created a situation where researchers have a vague inkling that their underlying philosophy, it's in need of refurbishment, and holism, that basically means like integration or like a whole picture approach, appears to offer much of what is wanted. Okay, Michael Morang, he's a biologist studying genetics, and he flat out says that reductionism has failed. He says, quote, this preformationist vision of gene action, it was reductionistic because the complex structures and functions of organisms were considered to be fully explained by the limited group of genes involved in the control of their formation. Now he says, it is precisely this ambitious reductionistic program that failed. It failed during the last two decades because the data, that big data, generated by genetic tools like DNA sequencers did not confirm this preformationist vision, but instead broke the simple model of correspondence between genotype and phenotype. Okay, and then we have Jim Esch, He's a computer scientist, and he says that biology surpasses engineering. Quote, genetic and biochemical processes are highly functional and dense systems. Dense systems. Cells perform highly complex functions regulated by genetic circuits and networks, much like engineered systems, only at far greater densities, complexity, and capabilities. Silicon-based technology cannot come close to the kinds of integration seen at the bacterial scale, for example. So across these different fields, researchers began to realize a better description of biology was needed. 
So to summarize, many started with a reductionistic approach. The big data basically showed that, as well as other scientific discoveries, showed that reductionism was not sufficient. This cause has caused and is causing more and more researchers to pivot, and that is what sparked the beginning of this systems biology revolution. So the revolution itself actually happened when a significant majority of scientists shifted towards a systems focus in their approach to explore and explain biology. In 2016, Sir John Chesick from the University of Belgrade defined the field as follows of systems biology. He says, quote, systems biology studies organisms as integrated systems integrated systems composed of dynamic and interrelated genetic protein, metabolic, and cellular components with the help of biology, mathematics, technology, and computer science. So I now want to connect this move of recognizing organisms as systems as a strong step towards design thinking. So I want to argue actually that the fact that a systems approach would be needed to explain biology was actually predicted by intelligent design. For many years, intelligent design proponents have been harping on the fact that living organisms are complex systems. Sure, they're analogous to man-made systems, but they're actually superior. That's what the ID proponents have been saying. And perhaps their most key talking point has been that design is actually the best explanation for these complex systems. And of course, that's because, that's because these complex systems have things such as, or to, that are required to build them, such as foresight, coordination, and irreducible complexity. So basically, because of the, these features, you know, that we know are required to build complex systems, that's part of the reason ID proponents have known that, you know, design has to be an important, um, part of this. So basically, because of these known requirements to produce a complex system, admitting that life is a complex system is basically equivalent to starting with a de design foundation. And again, that's because the systems that we know and experience from human design, they require purpose-driven, a purpose-driven design process. So you have to have foresight in order to have hierarchical integration. You have to have foresight to have hierarchical integration. You can't, you know, build this piece that build this piece independently and then, you know, make them all work together unless you have foresight for knowing what you want that system to do and what's needed to do it. Uh, you also require top-down design to have advanced signaling networks. We know that from, you know, building computer networks, building communication networks. Um, you have to have irreducible complexity to have emergent properties. That's like practically the definition of emergence. So consistent with this also the field of systems biology, like the successes and the advances that are being made in this field are based on borrowed design concepts from engineering. So these borrowed design concepts are things like optimization, decision-making, networking, feedback control, oscillation, information processing, robustness, memory. These are all concepts from the field of engineering, design concepts. And what systems biology is doing is they're taking these design concepts and they're applying them to biology. And that's what's allowing the field to actually really be successful and move beyond biology. So I want to give you two examples of 
that kind of illustrate how these concepts are being used in systems biology. So I'm going to give you an example of optimization, particularly the optimality of the human brain, and then I'm going to give you an example of oscillation. Okay, yeah, so this quote is about how optimal the human brain is. So I'm going to quote Michael. Um, he says, Cochrane et al. looked at the different ways in which the brain could evolve to process more information or work more efficiently. That's optimization. That's what optimization is. So, so sorry, I'm stopping the quote for a second. <laughs> so optimization is basically looking at how, looking at something, to, you know, to see if it could be made to work more efficiently or better in some way. And here, so now I'll continue. So they argue that the human brain has almost reached the limits of information processing that a neuron-based system allows and that our evolutionary potential is constrained by the delicate balance maintained between conduction speed, duration of the electrical pulse, synaptic processing time, and neuron density. So for those engineers in the room, these these different things here, conduction speed, duration of the electrical pulse, synaptic processing time, and neuron density, those are constraints. And what they're saying in this quote is, you know, when they've looked at all these different things, if you move one up, you have to sacrifice in a different area. That's what optimization is. So I'll continue again now. Any further enhancement of human brain power would require, guess what, an unrealistic goal an unrealistic biological option and must be discarded because of the trade-off that exists between these factors. So this is an example of how optimization, something that engineers do all the time, is now being applied to biology and it's helping us understand how precisely designed and tuned these systems are. Okay, oscillation. So oscillation is a concept used in electrical engineering that has to do with signaling. So here's a quote from Zhang et al. Quote, oscillation is a ubiquitous mechanism in biology, occurring in many biological events and controlling every aspect of cell physiology. Extensive evidence indicates that the proper coordination of the cellular fate decisions depends on P53 oscillatory dynamics. If you know anything about cancer biology or cell signaling, you know that P53 is like so important. And I think the first sentence here is just, or the first part is so key here. Oscillation is a ubiquitous mechanism in biology. So this, this signaling technique that we know from engineering, you know, is used to transmit, uh, pulses and information, it's, it's all over biology. So again, in a, this is an example of how, you know, a design concept is being applied to biology and it matches well. Okay, so hopefully I've convinced you now that systems biology has its roots in design thinking and its successes and advances that it's making as a field are coming from the application of design logic to biology. Now, something that I'm personally just very excited about is how the ID scientists are actually taking this revolution a step further. They are saying, we are saying, that by studying the human design process called engineering, we can come to a deeper understanding of what exactly would be necessary to produce and explain biological systems. For example, like from human engineering, we know that design requires a plan, right? We know that design requires a plan. 
We also know from engineering that hard problems require elegant solutions. We also know that designs are optimized around constraints. And we know that designers often reuse code and concepts. So I'm kind of going to kind of look through these things in order and just point out some of the ways the ID community is hoping to use these borrowed concepts from engineering to bring more design into biology. Okay, to the first point that design requires a plan. So from engineering, we know that these design diagrams, they can help us organize and build complex systems. So this past December, um, Daniel and I went to the NASA Museum in Huntsville, Alabama. And I took this picture here on, uh, I guess it's on your left. Yeah, so I, I took that picture. It's of a design, it's a design diagram for one of the rocket, rocket engines. And so the engineers use these types of things to organize and build, you know, a complex system. Now, ID proponents are suggesting that we do this with biology. And actually, this past year, in 2021, Dean Schultz, an engineer, he did this. He built a, he, he did a design diagram for the bacterial flagellum. Some of you guys are probably familiar with that. The bacterial flagellum is just like an outboard rotary motor on bacteria that allows them to swim. So he, he did a design diagram um, for that outboard motor. And the reason that that's so, so powerful and that we're so excited about that is because it can help us really anticipate, because um, engineers, they've built rotary, outboard rotary motors. So they know like what components are necessary to do that. So even if we haven't discovered those proteins in biology or we don't know exactly how they work, um, by thinking about, you know, what's necessary to build one, we can really gain insight to what to look for in biology. Okay, the second point, hard problems require elegant solutions. So engineers, they more easily recognize impressive design, and that's because they've tried to build stuff. So I remember one of my first interactions with a engineer, with myself as a biologist and engineer, I was in Texas sitting with this engineer like at a pic across, we were across from each other at this picnic table. And he was telling us, telling this group of us, like all about the different problems he had solved in his career. And, you know, we're all like very impressed. And at some point the conversation shifts to biology. And I remember that he got kind of quiet. He like set down his barbecue sandwich, set down his uh, drink. And he looked at, he looked at me and he said, now that's a field that solves some really hard problems. And that really has stuck with me because while I never thought about biology that way, you know, we just, we just, biologists, we just go out and just discover stuff, right? But if you've actually tried to build something, then when you come across something really that's elegantly built, you recognize it easily. And so ID proponents are hoping that these kind of, the, the engineer's skills in design detection can actually help us better understand biology's solutions. Okay, to the third point, that designs are optimized around constraints. So remember in my example of the optimality of the human brain, we had those different constraints, right? And if we make one of them better or if we move one of them up, then, someone's, then something else has to go down, right? So 
this, as I said, happens all the time in engineering. We know that trade-offs are all part of the design process. You basically, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So ID proponents really are hoping to apply this realization from engineering to explain aspects of biology that are currently labeled as poor design. Um, you've probably heard of some of them, like the human appendix or the human vertebrae or the ankle, as we heard this morning, right? So people are saying like, oh, this is poor design, but maybe it's actually the best possible solution given the constraints. And that's something ID proponents are actively investigating. Okay, to the fourth point, which is that designers often reuse code and concepts. Again, in engineering, we see this all the time. Engineers reuse code, they reuse concepts in their design. And ID proponents are hoping to apply that realization also to explain similarities in biology. So for instance, humans and chimps, we have lots of similarities, right? And many people in the sciences currently believe that the similarities between humans and chimps are the result of descendants or ancestry. But it's also possible that those similarities are the result of code reuse or just concept reuse, right? And so ID proponents are hoping to, you know, kind of explore that as a possible solution for many similarities that we see in biology. So the result of all of this, the result of the systems biology revolution is that in the end, we have a clearer description of life. And I want to read you this quote from Yuri Allen. He's an amazing scientist. He wrote this book um, called An, An Introduction to Systems Biology, Design Principles of Biological Circuits. And this is part of the intro of that book. He says, quote, the cell is an integrated device made of several thousand types of proteins. Each protein is a nanometer size molecular machine that carries out a specific task with exquisite precision. The cell continuously monitors its environment and calculates the amount at which each type of protein is needed. This information processing function, which determines the rate of production of each protein, is largely carried out by transcription networks. So the result of all that is that we have a clearer, a better description of life. And of course, why does this all matter? Well, it matters first of all because using design and biology can help us do better science. Um, it also matters because at the end of the day, if we are able to better understand the system, we're also able to better understand when things go wrong, which means we can make, we can help our doctors do a better job healing people. You know, we can help our geneticists do a better job diagnosing, um, genetic diseases, all these different types of things. And then lastly, um, providing meaning and purpose. And I know we've heard quite a bit about this this weekend also, but to know that one is basically a masterful piece of art created, designed, that instantly gives a person meaning and purpose. And then, you know, there's no need to get meaning and purpose from our society, even our family, or our friends. We have intrinsic meaning and purpose if we are this masterful piece of art, you know, designed, designed piece of art. So I want to leave you guys with, you know, what can you do? What are, what are some things that maybe you guys can do in your, in your small circles to help bring awareness to this revolution that's happened in biology and to just help your friends and neighbors understand the similarities 
and the design in nature. So one thing that you can do is understand that this revolution has happened and also describe it as a design-based revolution because that's what it is. And then uh, thirdly, one thing that I have found helpful is also to just point out similarities between engineering and biology to your friends and neighbors. Help them start to see these connections between, you know, the outboard motor that's powering their boat and the outboard motor on the bacteria that's driving it around in their intestines, right? There are lots of similarities. And then uh, lastly, if you're a scientist or a biologist or an engineer, get involved in more interdisciplinary conversations. So just sitting down to talk with, if you're an engineer, sitting down to talk with a biologist. If you're a biologist, sitting down to talk with an engineer. Something just so that there's more crosstalk between these fields and we can begin to apply more design principles in biology. So with that, I would like to thank you guys. Thank you all so much for listening. That was Dr. Emily Reeves at the August 2022 Westminster Conference on Science and Faith with an update on systems biology, the significant new approach to biological sciences is being adopted by more and more serious researchers over recent years. Stay updated on advances like these by following ID the Future here, and please invite your friends and colleagues to listen along with you. For ID the Future, this is Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.